visitors. My name is Eric Bolton. I'm an elder here, and I get to come back to you today. I taught the first week of this class, <clears throat> a couple weeks off, and now I'm back for Romans chapter 2. We're walking through uh, the power of God, a study on the power of God through the book of Romans, and um, the elders are teaching through this. Uh, Kyle will be here in a uh, in next week uh, to touch on the second half of Romans chapter 2. Um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. Uh, Kyle and I had to kind of agree, we got these two weeks per chapter, so where's, where's my border, where's his border? So I'm, I'm driving right up to r- verse 11 and then uh, passing the baton. Uh, you guys probably saw the same thing with uh, Jim and Marshall uh, the past two weeks in Romans chapter 1. So um, I hope those, these last two weeks have been encouraging to you guys, and we're going to uh, jump into, in the context of Romans chapter 1, uh, today we're going to jump into the uh, first 11 verses, as I said, of Romans chapter 2. So let's, let's open in, let me open in prayer, and then we will <clears throat> start to dig in here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for yours is uh, the kingdom and the power and the glory uh, forever. In the beginning, you spoke and brought all things uh, that are into existence. Uh, You've created the heavens and the earth and all things in them, and you created each of us in your image. You know us. Uh, You've ordered the events of our lives in your sovereign providence, even to the extent that uh, we are here this morning. Uh, And... Because you know us and because you love us, you know that we are weak and foolish and rebellious and that we are tempted in so many ways and fall in those ways. But uh, the Lord Jesus was tempted in every way, uh, yet was without sin. And because of that, we can stand before you uh, in his righteousness. And I pray that you would pour that truth into us this morning as we continue to look Uh, at the problem that we all face as we prepare to drive uh, through your word in the book of Romans and Paul's letter to the church in Rome to understand how uh, these things apply to us today as Christians here in 2023 at the church in Greensboro. Uh, I pray that you would give us that mindset that Paul's instruction for the church in Rome applies very clearly here as well to us as Christians and to the church here that you have put in place. Uh, Give us that perspective, help us to look to your word, and be grateful uh, for the redemption that is ours in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Okay, wow, bright light out of that projector. Um, So uh, Kyle gave us a little, uh, as he prepared the the schedule for these classes, he he titled each each class, um, he titled the class today, God's Forbearance. Um, forbearance, by definition, just means a delaying uh, an inevitable outcome. Um, forbearance means um, putting off for some time, for a reason, what must be. And forbearance shows up in the Bible, interestingly, a few times, uh, one of which is in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, and then in Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at that a little bit, um, and then we're going to look at Romans chapter 2, in the context of the larger outline of Romans, for the purpose of understanding 
uh, a little more clearly where we are in terms of our problem before God. Um, and then from that foundation, hopefully we can move into other pieces of doctrine in Romans and understand it more clearly. Uh, we're going to hit today a few uh, doctrinal principles that you really have to have a good understanding of to be able to understand Romans chapter 2. So we're going to hit that. And then we're going to hopefully circle around and see uh, the end of Romans chapter 2, the first half of Romans chapter 2, where, where, the, where the word says, God shows no partiality. And we need to understand how, with, with is Paul, Paul speaking here in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, to very different types of Christians in Rome and at the church in Rome. But at the end, he says, God shows no partiality, almost equating uh, their problems. So how can that be? We're going to go all the way around in a circle, hopefully, and, and be able to answer that question at the end. How can that be that God can show no partiality to two subgroups of Christians in Rome that are apparently, by outward measure, very, very different? That's what we're going to try to see today. So um, I put this uh, verse here, verse 4 and 5, is just a, a way to set the, set the stage. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? So forbearance, again, is delaying an outcome, uh, an a, a inevitable outcome. Patience, obviously, can be, can be synonymous with that. God is patient in his forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So the implication here and in, in other places too is that forbearance uh, and kindness and patience uh, throughout redemptive history is to lead to repentance. Okay, so let's think about this. I want to give you a little larger concept here. So first, uh, this is back to the outline. So we're in week three, God's forbearance. The past two weeks was God's righteousness and God's unrighteousness uh, compared in Romans chapter one. The larger outline of Romans, uh, we are, I, I came to you this, you know, the very first week and we talked about uh, the bigger picture. We talked about this outline. Um, the beginning of Romans chapter one sets God's righteousness uh, very early. Jim probably covered just a very few verses in Romans chapter one and then right into the problem of the unrighteous. And this is highlighted in three different ways. Romans chapter one, the second half, the Gentile sinfulness. Um, the Jewish sinfulness, which is what we're going to hit right now, the beginning of it, and then the universal problem of mankind, the universal sinfulness. And then from that point, we jump in chapter 3 through 5 to looking to the answer to that problem in Christ, uh, tying the Old Testament truths and the application of uh, the, the covenant of grace from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and tying obedience in Christ back to Adam, in Romans chapter 5. Um, and then we start to transition, as I talked about the first week, into the truth of the gospel, the truth of what Christ has done for each of us, and then how that affects how we live in the world. And it starts uh, with understanding that while we're justified in God's sight, the life of a Christian, as, as is so clearly outlined in Romans chapter 7, is war. It's the war between what has been defeated and what remains, the effects of sin in your life and how as you live your life, you know what you should do, but your members do the other. 
and there's this life as, as you're being sanctified, as God is working in your heart to change your desires uh, from darkness to light, where you have this war going on in your members, in your body, in your mind, in your heart, right? Um, and that plays itself out in life of, as a Christian. That's in all the way through Romans chapter 8. And then uh, we shift into, uh, slowly there, we shift into life in the world in light of that. And then hopefully at the end, we're seeing a desire to take these truths, uh, not just to our own hearts, but to, uh, to the world around us. So uh, we're at the very beginning, and we're only going to get, I think, to, through Romans chapter 7 or 8 before Romans chapter 7, the struggle, right? So this is a slide. I had a guy came to me, come up to me after the first class, and he said, man, Romans, I'm not, it's so tough. I get through like the first three chapters. I feel so bad. I just stop." And, and so we're going to feel really bad by Christmas, um, but then, then we're going to pivot in the spring and it's going to get, it's going to get, uh, it's going to get better, uh, but there's going to be some good highlights. Uh, hopefully today's one of them in the, uh, in the path. So I want to hit a couple things in, I want to revisit a couple of things in Romans chapter one. And I just, I mean, I hit this hard the first week. We're going to hit it again today because these common things I think we're going to find are that, that begin in Romans chapter 1 are um, the foundational issue uh, with both types of Christians in Rome. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we have the unrighteous. So I highlighted a couple things for us to remember in terms of the progression. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How does that happen? Suppression of truth. Take this home and... and Put it on your refrigerator and talk to your kids about it because the progression happens and it's consistent across history, I think. Uh, it starts by suppression of truth. The unrighteous suppress the truth, the truth about God. And we're going to see in Romans chapter 2 that the suppression of truth maybe spreads beyond what you might think. We'll learn about that in a minute. From suppression of truth, foolish hearts were darkened. We suppress the truth, and then we love the darkness more than we love the light. Suppression of truth leads to darkened hearts. Leads to the conclusion that we exchange the truth about God all the way back to the garden, right? What God said is not true, and man fall, fell as a result. It's been happening ever since. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and serve the creature rather than the creator, Suppression of truth, hearts were darkened, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then what results? All manner of ungodliness. Um, this is talking about, these verses in verse 26 and 27 are talking about uh, in the culture of Rome, um, under the category of the Gentiles, you had massive sexual perversion uh, in Rome, much like United States, 2023, right? Massive sexual perversion. Um, and then he goes on and says, um, hearts were darkened, exchange the, the truth of the, uh, exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. And then the result of that, downstream of that, is, a, is sexual perversion, all manner of ungodliness, and a debased mind doing what ought not to be done. And not only do we downstream of those things, of suppression of truth, do the bad things, but give approval to those who practice them. That's the progression of the, of the unrighteousness that we looked at, hopefully probably last week, you guys looked at with Marshall uh, in Romans chapter 1. 
Now, I'm going to hit a couple pieces of doctrine that we need to understand to be able to interpret and understand Romans chapter 2. So, all the way back to the beginning, and I, I hit these things, uh, I repeat these things because I need to remember and because you guys need to remember too, um, and that way we can build off of the foundation. So, what, what's the problem? Well, the first problem is the distance between God and the creature is, is just massive. It's unfathomable. God's holiness and our sinfulness, you can't compare. And so uh, our, our doctrinal standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, wrote some things about this in God's covenant with man. Um, and it starts with this distance between God and the creature. So reading 7.1, the distance between God and the creature is so great that all the reasonable creatures do obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward by, by, by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So this is just a wonderful set of words that says, we can't approach God. God doesn't need us. And the distance between us is so great that he has to condescend. He has to come down and say, all right, we're going to make a covenant together. And that's by God's choice. So the first thing is God makes a covenant. Now, the first one is, we've talked about this a number of times, the covenant of works. Where it very simple. Life was promised to Adam in the garden and in him to all of his posterity. Everybody coming after him as his representative, as him, he is a representative of mankind upon condition, simple, of perfect and personal obedience. Obey eternal life. Covenant of works, right? We've talked about it uh, many times in the past. Now, 7.3. Man, so there was covenant of works. How long did the covenant of works last? Well, actually, it's still, it's still going. But how long did man, did Adam and Eve keep it? Not very long. We don't know exactly, but it didn't work out very well, right? Pretty early in the, in the whole process. So man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, which means that Adam and Eve were not able to, to affect personal, perfect and personal obedience. Did not work, right? So... Because of that, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace. Now, this is not an oopsie. God didn't say, oh, that didn't work. I wasn't expecting that. Let's come up with something else. We'll just have a, we'll, we'll come up with a different plan. Um, the covenant of grace is, states that he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained into eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So the covenant of works is still going to be kept. It's going to be kept by Christ, and he's going to give us the Holy Spirit to encourage us and make us willing and able to believe. And all, by the way, also in sanctification, he's going to change our hearts and cause us to desire him uh, instead of desire darkness. Now, um, these notes I've, I've highlighted a couple times, but just to ground us again, um, again, the covenant of works didn't go away. It's just that Jesus is the keeper of the covenant of works. So Jesus is the first person to get into heaven, says these uh, notes in the Reformation Study Bible, by his good works. And so do we get into heaven by good works. But it's Christ's good works, not our good works. Okay? Make sense? The covenant of works is still kept, but it's kept by Christ on our behalf. Now, step further, 7.5. Uh, these are a little more uncharted waters for us. Um, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Now, this is thinking about Old Testament and New Testament. So pre 
before Christ and after Christ. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. Okay, so everything before Christ was pointing to Christ as their Savior, although imperfect, unclear at times, but that's what all that time was about. Which were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith and the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and it's called the Old Testament. So the Christians in the Old Testament that died were saved by Christ's work on the cross, Christ's work in perfect obedience on their behalf before Christ became man on this earth. Does that make sense? Old Testament were saved by Christ. New Testament were saved by Christ. How we see that in the Old Testament is through promises, things pointing to Christ. Neil has said in here, and not in Sunday school, in the sermon numerous times, everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ, forward to Christ. Everything in the New Testament points back to Christ. And then we all turn about face and look forward uh, to glory, right? It's all about Christ. That's the answer. Now, 7.6, you guys still with me? Doctrinal foundations is what we're talking about here. Because to to understand the Jewish mindset, to understand um, how Romans, the book of Romans applies not just to the church in Rome, but also to the church in Greensboro, uh, we have to understand some of these basic principles. So we were talking about pre-Christ, now under the gospel. In the New Testament, after Christ, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, Christ came and dwelt on earth and lived among us. The ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are easier. They're simple because we've seen Christ, right? We know the story. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a pointing to uh, Christ has come. And so the administration, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we know those, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity. Things are easy. Uh, we should be so grateful that we live in 2023 and not B.C., uh, with more simple, with simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations. So we're pivoting here, both Jews and Gentiles, and it's called the New Testament. They're not, therefore, two covenants of grace. There's not a covenant of grace that was Old Testament covenant of grace, an old co- co- uh, uh, a new covenant of grace in the New Testament. There's not two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. In other words, carried out a little differently from our perspective, depending on when we lived, right? We live now, and so Christ has come, Christ is risen, praise God, and we can hear from his word, we can read Paul's letter to the the church in Rome, we can read uh, the gospel accounts of the life of Christ, We can celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper. We can pray. And these things are the means that God uses us, uses to draw us close to him and to grow us. Um, 7.6. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
how these things were carried out as God, as God promised to his people in different periods of time. That's right. Old and, well, different periods of time. And then the, the covenants in terms of how God dealt with Noah, how God dealt with Abraham was in... You should be. Yeah, so the big picture is God does not have a different plan for different dispensations or different times, right? And that's, that's uh, don't let the word get taken away by somebody else. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Okay, so with that context, so we have where we are now, right? Let's rewind back. We're, in, we're at the church in Rome. Paul's writing a letter to where you have a whole bunch of people. Um, the Jews and the Gentiles are now gathered in Rome, and you've got these folks that were part of God's people in the Old Testament. And now Christ has come and said, go therefore and baptize all nations, um, making disciples of all nations. And this is Jews and Gentiles. And you've got these people gathered up, and you've got the Gentiles who are busy in all kinds of sexual perversion and not knowing anything about the law, uh, not knowing anything about these, these, um, these um, sacrifices and ordinances and the way that uh, God pointed to Christ and the church and the Jewish people. Um, and these people are coming together, right? And we get to this letter to the church in Rome, and, and Paul starts, as we've looked at, with ungodliness, unrighteousness. And now he pivots and says, now the Jews are all probably at this point, and many of us in this room. So that's what I'm saying. Church in Rome, church in Greensboro, um, these things should hit very close to home for all of us. Many of us are reading about the unrighteousness, unrighteousness, unrighteousness and thinking, that's, I'm not nearly that bad. Uh, and Paul in Romans chapter 2, he pivots to point to the Jews in Rome. But let's apply that now. Think about it in your own heart as we go forward to the church here as well in Greensboro and in America and in the world, 2023. So Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what we're studying. So if you have a Bible, open it. If you want to just look on the screen, I removed uh, verse references, but you, can, you should be able to see um, Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, old man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, old man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay, so these are, these are that's the first five verses. We're going to go to the 11. These are some... some uh, straightforward and difficult words, and the basic summary that I can, that I can, if I were to paraphrase this, I would say that he's looking um, to the Jews in Rome and saying, how can you judge those around you if you're doing the same thing? Are you presuming 
on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God should lead you, that this kindness, forbearance, should lead to repentance. But because you're your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. So continuing on down the path of doing the bad things that he's talking about, bad's currently kind of undefined, and not doing the good things, that's also undefined, you're storing up wrath for yourself. Does that make sense? On the day of judgment, which is coming, forbearance means, the word forbearance is here, right? In, in verse, I don't have it marked, four or five, somewhere in there, um, four, I think. Uh, that means putting off for some time what's inevitable. So the wrath of God is coming, and those who are doing good things uh, will avoid that wrath. Those who are doing bad things uh, won't. That's kind of what I'm reading there. So one of the questions is, what, what are the bad things that the Jews are doing, right? The implication is the same things that you read in Romans chapter 1, right? Maybe? This is where it gets hard. Um, let's, look to, let's look to Romans chapter 3. Sometimes it's easy to get to the end and come back. Um, this is the other place that forbearance shows up um, in Roman, Romans as a word. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25 says, But now the, un, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And I'm jumping over Kyle's whole talk next week on the law, so just bear with me. Um, so you'll learn more about that next week. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So we have a little more clarification here. at Romans chapter 3, when all the partiality is gone, when Paul's very plainly saying there is no distinction. Um, He points back to and says, now, for this period of time, God did not bring, uh, and God doesn't now, bring immediate judgment. In other words, death, not always. Sometimes he does, but in large part, he's not bringing immediate judgment on people and a culture immediately. Um, Even even saying that he had passed over former sins. That doesn't make those sins unimportant or, or um, less offensive to God, but he, in his sovereignty, is leading us and the church in Rome and the church over time, Christians throughout time, to repentance by his forbearance. Now, but don't mistake, this is what Paul's saying in chapter 2, don't mistake forbearance, don't presume that forbearance is your good or permission, Right? How do we know that? Well, there's some more talk about this in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, um, verse 8 through 10. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach what? Repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Forbearance is just God pausing the wrath of God is coming. Okay, now what what 
how do we get out of this, right? This is where we are. Um, and he's saying, oh, he's saying, suppress the truth, Gentiles. You're suppressing the truth. And, and falling from that is all kinds of ma- manners of sexual perversion and, and malice and envy, disobedience to parents. We walked through all that stuff. It's like every, anything you can imagine that's quote unquote a bad thing is, is covered in um, Romans chapter 1. And then Romans chapter 2, he pivots to the Jews and says, hey guys, you who judge and do the same things, you're just as bad. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. He will render to each. It's the second half. We're back to where we're at, what we're actually studying now. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Okay, so a lot of foundation here in, in 30 minutes. What should we do simplistically? This is like you, the elementary Sunday school class. At the conclusion of Romans chapter 2, all the way to verse 11, what should we do? Yeah, and even more simple than that. It's real, it's real easy, right here at the end of the verse. We should do good, right? We should do good and avoid doing bad things. Now, we've got to figure out what good and bad is, and that's, that's the challenge. Um, Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Romans chapter 2, uh, begins the section where he's talking through the verse 11 verses. And um, I thought this was well put and straight to the point. He doesn't mince words usually. In the former chapter, chapter 1, the apostle had represented the state of the Gentile world to be as bad and black as the Jews were ready enough to pronounce it. And now designing to show that the state of the Jews was very bad too, and their sin in many respects more aggravated To prepare his way, he sets himself in this part of the chapter to show that God would proceed upon equal terms of justice with Jews and Gentiles, and not with such a partial hand as the Jews were apt to think he would use in their favor. So I think we get, hopefully we get now, uh, chapter one, all kinds of bad things going on there, right? Chapter two, well, if you presume, if you presume that you're special, then that's bad too. Okay? We just took another step up. Now we're in third grade Sunday school class. Okay? Um, uh, Romans chapter 1 is bad, unrighteousness, all these bad things, sexual perversion. Those are bad. We can all put those in the bad category, right? Well, now, um, if you think you're so good, self-righteous, then that's bad too. And especially if you look back to the, to the words of, of the first part of Romans chapter 2, um, especially if you say, ah, uh, I, you're really bad. You're doing all these unrighteous things. Um, and, 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 the, and the word says, you who judge, who do the same things, who do the same things, you're also in the bad category. And then Romans chapter 3 is, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So what's good and what's bad? That's what we need to understand. How are we going to live in life? How are we going to live and understand this if we don't know what good and bad is? So, 
some thoughts. What was the sin of the Jews in Romans chapter 2? I mean, if you just read this, if you just read it straightforward, um, you could say, well, they are involved in all manner of, in the same way, they're involved in all manner of sexual perversion, of malice, envy, um, all the different lists of things, hatred, disobedience to parents, um, insolent thoughts. Um, They were involved in all those things exactly the same way. The only difference was they were saying, ah, well, we're not as bad as you are. Uh, Gentiles, and we're also um, God's people. And so God has a special favor for us, so he allows us to do this sexual perversion and all these things, um, and it's okay. Um, that's probably not right. Um, it's a matter of degree. I mean, they were sanctified relative to the Gentiles, but they were also pumped up with pride, so primary sin. Yeah, so, so that's an interesting thought. So um, that's my point, right? If you just read Romans chapter 2, that's a great illustration. You can quickly equate, hey, obviously, he's saying the only difference, you're doing the same thing. The only difference is you're, you're, you're kind of prideful about it because you think what you're doing is a little bit better because you're maybe not doing it as much or something. Um, um, but that's really not true. To your point, uh, the Jews uh, were... Had a diff- they, they had the law, right? They, were, they cared about the law. They were, the Ten Commandments was not foreign to them. They knew that, that what God's expectations were in the covenant of works. They had the Ten Commandments. They knew that thou shalt not commit adultery. They weren't going after all kinds of sexual perversions because uh, they had that information, right? So when in Romans chapter 2, I mean, let's go back there for a second. Where are we? So this doesn't make sense, right? Because we know the Jews were better than the Gentiles. They were living lives a little bit nicer. They were, they were paying attention to what God wanted them to do. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. But we know they weren't. They had the law. They weren't doing the same things. This whole manner of unrighteousness that we see in Romans chapter 1, um, it's not the same as what was going on uh, in the population of the Jews. So, so why would, would Paul say, who practiced the very same things? That's where we are now. So what was the sin of the Jews? And pride, that's true. Self-righteousness, um, that's true. Um, I wrote a sentence here, answering the problem of sin, very simplistically, rewinding back. Um, answering the problem of sin with the answer, what can I do, rather than I can't do but Jesus did. That's back to, I like to break things down to second or third grade Sunday school classes. Um, what can I do? So the problem is, I am a sinner. And we all have it. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. What do we do with that? We either say, what can I do to make that better? Or I can't do anything. Jesus did. Um, and if you take a step back, the Jews' tendency is to think, in Romans chapter 2, the Jews' tendency is to think, what can I do, rather than, I can't do, but Jesus did. However, the words sound like, 
they're involved in the very same things. And I'm, I'm ready to offer that they are involved in the very same thing. It's just not the same thing you might think. Um, let me explain, and you can decide if you agree. Um, Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't lose sight of Christ. The sin of the Jews in Romans chapter 2 in the, in, the, in the elementary Sunday school class, what can I do? So the focus is on I rather than what Jesus did. What I can do instead of what I can't do and what Jesus did. Don't lose sight of Christ, highlighted in Colossians chapter 2. Um, didn't get the reference right on that one, obviously copy and paste. The bottom one, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ is the answer, um, and, the, and pointing to Christ only is the problem of both the Jews and the Gentiles. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. All the way back to Romans chapter 1, I think the... I think what Paul is trying to highlight is the problem with the Jews and the Gentiles are the same thing. But it's not what's downstream. It's not the sexual perversion. It's not the, the envy. It's not the, the completely disregarding the law. It's the suppression of truth. It's the suppression of truth about God, who God is, what he promises, and what he's done. And complete trust in God's truth. It's suppression of of truth. I'm going to read something to you here. Um, we've had this book a, num- a number of times. Have anybody read The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson? No? We did it in men's Bible study, so three of you guys did. Um, it's been a number of years ago. Um, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it's, it talks about these kind of things in the context of some of the founding um, debates that led to the to the ARP church to be quite honest um, it talks about the marrow controversy um, and that's a whole nother thing that we could talk about uh, that we don't have time for today um, but it's historically very interesting in the in the in the history of the reformed church but also in the history of the ARP church people uh, like Thomas Boston and Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine folks like that um, one of these marrow men wrote uh, about, there's a whole chapter here on legalism, and the, the thesis of this book is the problem of the antinomian and the legalist is the same thing. Now, does that make sense? Antinomian means, uh, in this, in our Romans chapter 2 context, or Romans chapter 1 and 2, the Gentiles. The antinomians are those that, that don't have any clue of the law, don't care, and they just live their life um, in full pursuit of anything they want. Whatever feels good, do. Um, that's an antinomian. Anti means against. Nomian is law, anti-law. Against the law. No law, right? And the legalists are those that, he's got a, some words on them, I'm going to read you in a second, but those that are the opposite. Those that um, pursue the law, live their life, 
the best they can, continue to do everything that they can um, to uphold the law, but they do it from the wrong posture of the heart. They do it from a posture of suppressing the truth. Does that make sense? Read this. A man is to be counted a legalist or self-righteous while he does not pretend that his obedience is perfect, yet he relies on it for a title to life. Okay? So we can all, there's very, there's very few men and women and boys and girls that would say that they're perfect. Sunday school class, have you ever sinned? Yes. Did Jesus sin? No. Um, are you perfect? No. Okay, everybody knows that. Um, however, the subtlety comes in. Nobody believes, pretends that obedience is perfect, yet he relies on it for a title to life. Self-righteous men have, in all ages, set aside as impossible to be fulfilled by them that condition of the covenant of works, which God had imposed on Adam, and have framed for themselves various models of that covenant, which, though they are far from being institutions of God and stand upon terms lower than perfect obedience, yet are of the nature of the covenant of works. So, everybody, legalist and antinomian, if they're... If they're in the church now, so this is fast. This is a newer book, right? It's fast forwarding to the church today. Um, the antinomians and the legalists in the church today all would say, "I can't. I need Christ." Right? That's not debated. It's not, "Hey, I can. I can live. I can keep the law perfectly. Keep the covenant of works without Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I'm a Christian." Nobody goes there. The unbelieving Jews who sought righteous, righteousness by the works of the law were not so very ignorant or presumptuous as to pretend to perfect obedience either. Rewind back to Romans chapter 2. Neither did those professed Christians in Galatia who desired to be under the law and be justified by the law, of whom the apostle therefore testified that they had fallen from grace, that's Galatians 5, presume to plead that they could yield perfect obedience. Nobody, nobody said that, right? On the contrary, their public profession of Christianity showed that they had some sense of their need of Christ's righteousness. So common ground. But their great error was they did not believe that the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone was sufficient to entitle them to the justification of life. And therefore, they depended for justification partly on their own obedience to the moral and ceremonial law. Speaking about the Jews now. It was this and not their pretensions to perfect obedience that the apostle had in view when he blamed them for cleaving to the law of works and for expecting justification by the works of the law. For relying for justification partly on their own works of obedience to the moral and ceremonial laws, they, as the apostle informed them, were fallen from grace. Christ had become no effect to them, and they were debtors to the whole law. If you don't claim Christ, then you don't have Christ fulfilling the covenant of works on your behalf. That's what this is saying. And that is the sin of the Jews in Romans chapter 2. That's that the wrath of God is also coming for. Now listen to this. By depending for justification partly by their obedience to the law, they framed the law into a covenant of works, and such a covenant of works as would allow for imperfect instead of perfect works. And by relying, relying partly on the righteousness of Christ, they mingled the law with the gospel and works with faith in, a, in the affair of justification. justification. Thus, they perverted both the law and the gospel and found for themselves a motley covenant of works. Um, now, listen at this. It's possible to have a legalistic head and a legalistic heart, right? Everybody knows that, right? 
That's easy. I, if I keep the law, if, if I keep the law, God will like me. Um, and my, in my heart, uh, I'm going to do everything I can to please God. Um, it's also too possible to have an evangelical head and a legalistic heart. Now that means you can profess Christ, but still try to meet him halfway. It was this that the marrow men found themselves confronting. Several of them, first in themselves, for one of the diseases their marrow exposed was the subtle thought that my growth and holiness strengthens my justification. Now, listen to this again. It was a disease, says Sinclair Ferguson, the marrow exposed, and this is this controversy, we won't go into it now, but just go with me on that. The disease that they exposed was the subtle thought that my growth in holiness strengthens my justification. He says, confirm it? Yes. Strengthen it? Never. Does this sound slightly antinomian, is what he asks? Of course. But only if one is listening with legalistic ears. That hurt? Me too. I mean, we're all in the same boat. So how does that work itself out? Um, What this is saying is the problem with the unrighteous in Romans chapter 1 is they they suppress the truth about God and they worship the creature rather than the creator. What the problem is in Romans chapter 2 is the Jews suppress the truth about God and don't believe the truth that only Christ is the answer to the problem. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that something doesn't change. That doesn't mean that that God, because he tells us it happens and we know it, that God sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts and changes our affections and we do better. We avoid, by God's grace, we don't fall into uh, sexual perversions like we see in Romans chapter 1. We don't pursue unrighteousness and malice and envy and hate people and kill people. We don't do that anymore as much, and we get better, and we just do it in our heart instead of actually doing it, right? Um, But the problem the Jews had, which is on a train to the wrath of God, that's what Romans chapter 2 is saying. You're on a train to the same place. And that's thinking that growth in holiness, sanctification, does anything to strengthen the work that Christ and Christ alone has done for each of us on the cross. It's confirmation of it. Faith without works is dead. That's James chapter 2. Absolutely. But it's confirmation of what Christ has done and the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Not you building up or strengthening your justification Um, but confirming it. So, what do we do with that? Um, What do we do with that? Well, if sanctification plays a role, um, the problem of the the Christians and of the the church in Rome was you have these two types of people. Um, You have these people that are well aware of the law, um, and you have the people that had no clue and were living like crazy lives, um, and they all are, are saved by Christ. They become, they're justified. They have, a, they have a, 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 a credible profession of faith in Christ. Well, that's the church in Rome, and guess what else it is? 
It's a church right here, right? We have people that have, that have come, maybe people in this room that have, that have done all that. Romans chapter 1 sounds like, hey, that was, that's my life until yesterday, maybe. Um, and we have people in this room that are very much in the mindset of the Romans chapter 2 Christians. That I've never done anything like that. I've never thought about stuff like that. Um, and in our worst moments, I'm a little better because of that. Right? Those of you who never knew a time when you didn't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, that's a wonderful testimony. Mm-hmm. But don't let that thought go to, that makes me better than the man or the woman. Uh, that Romans chapter 1 is more indicative of their life. Sanctification. Um, a couple of things I'm pointing out. Chapter, larger catechism, question 77. Where do justification and sanctification differ? Um, it's a whole big long thing, but the point is, is sanctification not equal in all? Everybody's on a different path. Everybody's on a different progression. Um, the Holy Spirit's going to be working on your heart. I mean, the man, the woman that was living the life of, of, of Romans chapter 1 has a credible profession of faith. They realize that they've been living a life of sin and they now know that everything that they've done, Christ has been punished for and they are free from that sin in God's eyes. Sanctification looks a little different. The first thing they're going to do is maybe stop going to the prostitute. Okay? That's the first step of sanctification. Um, Down the road, some of you are in a place where you're going to be reading your Bible and praying um, for a, a longer period of the day and thinking about God's truth and how it applies to how you talk to your kids and how when you get impatient with your wife or your children and you raise your voice, how that's a sin against God. And some people are, try, are, are walking away from the prostitute. You understand the difference? It's a progression. And there's people in the church that are on different places in this, in this walk. And Romans, Hebrews chapter 5 tells us, so by this time, some of you ought to be teachers. Some people need to be taught the basic principles, the oracles of God. And this is a beautiful thing about the church. We have all kinds of people. Some people who can um, be fed need milk, and some need solid food. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practices to distinguish good from evil. But if you think because you... Uh, have had more time, had more time on the sanctification train that you are look better in God's eyes, then you've got it all wrong. And the wrath of God is coming. That's Romans chapter 2. Um, 1 John 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us. We need Jesus And if we say we need Jesus, he'll forgive us from our sins. And we all need Jesus. Romans chapter 3, where we're going is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 2 verse 11 says, God shows no partiality. We're all in need of a Savior. Um, So where... Where our minds need to go, we this is some of the these things are some of the foundational reasons that we say we're a get to church and not a have to church. Um, we've written three principles about what that means, um, and 
these early chapters of Romans is, is some of the foundational principles uh, from which we pull these things. Um, obedience to God's law is important. So don't hear me say that, that the law doesn't matter. Don't hear me say that what God uh, requires of us is insignificant. The Ten Commandments are given to God's people for a reason. Uh, we should take heed uh, and we should know that in our hearts, in our actions, what we do and what we fail to do in respect to each of these commandments, uh, not only in our actions, but in we, what we don't do, and also what we want to do and what we don't want to do in our hearts. So that pretty much covers everything. And obedience to God's law is important. And our desire and longing to obey is confirmation that the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts. Obedience to God's law is important. Don't think that I'm saying anything other than that. Obey your leaders, but elders are not lord of your conscience. So this is, this is a principle that we talk a lot more about in officer training, um, but it's the power of the elder. Uh, the elder has authority in the church. Christ is the king and head of the church, and he gives that power, he delegates that power to local sessions, and local sessions are made up of elders. Uh, and the hierarchy of accountability is local, the local church with a group of elders, and then that group of elders is, is accountable to presbytery and on up the chain to synod. And this plurality of men are uh, meant to lead the church and have the power to bind the consciences of the people in the Lord. Now, the Bible repeatedly underscores the importance of obeying your leaders. Hebrews chapter 13, 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5 is a wonderful place to go for officer training. Um, it talks about the number one characteristic of an officer in the church is humility. This authority, however, is never to be viewed as an autocrat, in an autocratic fashion, but is rather ministerial and declarative. That's to say that elders must keep in mind that our authority to bind people's consciences only goes as far as God's word clearly teaches. Okay? So we, can, we are only uh, declaring what God already has. That's what we can do. Um, now, we cannot and must not make or multiply rules of our own devising. Many people, both in officership and not, like to do that. Uh, we want to be the answer to all the questions. Uh, we want to impose our convictions on other people. Uh, that's our nature. Uh, however, sensitive and mature Christians will take the counsel, advice, encouragements, invitations, corrections, and rebukes of godly leaderships very seriously, which is great. You know, we all have some wisdom um, some of us have a little more than others, um, and you've got to find the guy that's smarter or the girl, lady that's smarter than you and go hang out with them. Um, that's what I've made my practice in life. Uh, I married one of them. <laughs> Where is she? Yeah, there you go. That's good. Um, you're always smarter if you hang out with smarter people. So take godly encouragement. Take wise counsel. Um, but don't bind people's consciences, and don't let your consciences be bound by others' convictions. So... Finally, principle is Christian liberty. Chapter 20 of the Confession, God alone is Lord of the conscience, has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. How do we exercise Christian liberty as church officers? We don't attempt to bind consciences in any way other than the Lord. COVID, biggest example of that in COVID was we had made no, had gave, no, gave you no opinion about 
your health care choices or your mask wearing. You do all that exactly how you want it. And we tried to be as gracious as we could to give different people with different convictions opportunities to still worship. Um, that was one of the most difficult things to, to navigate as a church, um, as a church leadership. Um, and I think many churches around us, uh, and, I mean, we failed too greatly in, in figuring the, all these things out. But many churches failed miserably. Um, and it's because of they violated this principle. Um, don't speak in manners that you don't have any right to speak in. Now, at Christian liberty means don't try to make your convictions everyone else's. Sanctification is a road. And it doesn't mean, um, it doesn't mean don't come beside a brother or sister and encourage them in the Lord. But again, what you do is not what saves you. It's what Christ has done goes both ways don't try to make other people's don't try to make your convictions everyone else's and don't be a slave to others convictions to others consciences and of course don't be a stumbling block if you know uh one of your brother or your sister uh has a history of um an issue with a certain christian liberty choice whether it's drinking alcohol or using tobacco or whatever it may be um don't rub things in people's faces that you know brings offense. That's just, that's just being polite, right? Um, Calvin's principles of Christian freedom. Uh, I'll just point this out as we, as we close because I think it's a really good point that people argue Christian liberty from the position of uh, license, from the position of it's my Christian liberty I'll do exactly what I want. There's a, there was a movement a few years ago. It's still moving a little bit. It kind of moves from one denomination to the other. But it, it moved to, reformate, to the Reformed, uh, Young, Restless, and Reformed movement uh, a few years ago. Um, many, some of you may have heard of them. Um, they were like, God's sovereign. I'm saved. Um, I'm the elect. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. It's only God. That's kind of right. Um, except the fact that faith without works is dead and it's kind of the fact that the confirmation of God actually working in your heart is that you you want to leave the sexual perversions and malice and all the different things in Romans chapter 1. Calvin wrote about Christian liberty is the freedom to obey without penalty. Does that make sense? This is important. The freedom to obey without penalty. Christian liberty is you are free. So as a Christian, right, it's not a, a... Justification and sanctification does not, justification, sanctification always follows justification, okay? We know that's true. So when you come to a saving relationship with Christ, you will move. Your affections will change. That's the Holy Spirit's presence in your heart. Um, Freedom to obey without penalty we all, as Christians, want to obey God more and more. We want, we desire light rather than darkness. Christian liberty, Calvin said, was the freedom to do that as a three-year-old or a four-year-old stumbling over ourselves and making a mistake. Christian liberty is freedom to obey without that obedience being effectual to your salvation. So you can obey Christ imperfectly. That's what Christian liberty is. You can obey recklessly because the longing of your heart is to please God. You can obey him, uh, and because it's, that obedience is not um, a means 
to your salvation, you can do that without concern if you're perfect. It's not liberty to, to not care about anything about God and run away from it. Um, freedom of the, freedom of the con- for the conscience, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Freedom never should be never an excuse for self-gratification. That's along the lines of what I talked about, uh, an antinomian view or a lack of care for the law, the young, restless, and reformed. Uh, freedom and respect for the weaker brother. Um, and that weaker brother can be the, the brother who's trying to, or sister who's trying to uh, affect their salvation through their righteousness. Or it could be the weaker brother who is um, prone to fall in a certain area. Both can be the weaker brother. Um, I went all over the place on that. But Romans chapter 2, um, Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 are foundational chapters to understanding the gospel. That's one of the reasons why we're teaching this class. And I hope, um, I hope that was interesting. I hope it was helpful. Any comments or I don't even know what time it is. It's 10 o'clock. Um, but we have some time. Are there any comments or questions that anybody has? Uh, also, if there's not, we'll, we'll open that up in a second. If there, as I encourage you, as, after I close in prayer, to hang out. We've got some time to worship. Talk about these things at your table. Come talk to me one-on-one if you'd like. Um, but questions first. Any, Steve? Know that your comments will be forever cemented in all of posterity. No pressure. <laughs> this morning I read uh, a commentary by R.C. Sproul on Romans, and he really hit it hard for me because he opened my eyes to see that I struggle with uh, all of this. You know, I'm on both sides of this issue sometimes. And he helped me to see that the the Jews, like us, w- will think that good works are t- to get us acceptable to God. And I've fallen into that big time over the years. And I'm beginning to realize that as we're studying redemption uh, on Wednesday night once a month and understanding what redemption is and salvation that that's what the Jews forgot. Mm. They left that out. And so therefore they fell into that camp of being good mm. and doing good works, uh, thinking that that's what saved them. R.C. added this to the equation. What is good works? And what is the motive for good works? And he says that unless you get that first piece right, that you are covered by the blood of Christ, that you are, you have the cloak of righteousness that only comes from Christ. When you have that right, then you begin to understand that the purpose of good works are for rewards. And that opened my eyes to something I never, I probably have seen but just glanced over. That opened the light for me. Because we all want to do good works. And if you don't have that first piece really nailed down, you're gonna when you get to heaven you'll see that. 
Mm. And, uh, and I, I want to be able to have a lot of treasure built up in heaven. And the first common, the, the, the why Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 sound like the two parties are suffering from the same problem is the first and primary good, good work is trust alone in Jesus Christ. That from the, nothing can uh, save us other than Christ's righteousness. And that problem is why Sinclair and others speak about, speak about the problem of people coming from the, the, the issue of sin from two different perspectives is this, the same problem. Suppression of truth about God. What, what God says, it's real simple. Any other thoughts? It hits me that the, with Romans 2, highlighting that the guilt of the Jewish heart uh, was as great as the guilt of the Gentile hands. Um, As Christ expanded um, or showed the connection between uh, the guilt and the heart, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. And so the ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great, here may judge its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mm. And have missed that their guilt is as great as the um, guilt of the Gentiles. And um, we both need a great Savior. Amen. My question is, um, the presentation today was using Romans 2 in a way to point at someone who views works as a means to have any level of increase of righteousness is just as in the bad boat as the most evil, wicked sinner as, as far as they will not be given the righteousness of Christ and their sin will be penalty, you know, punished by the, their wrath of God abides on them because they're seeking righteousness by works. I have heard good ministers use Romans 2 in a different way that focuses on um, maybe the third use of the law. To, like you mentioned that it's a de, kind of a more of a descriptive, I forget the word you used, uh, as confirmation of your state with God. Mm-hmm. That Good it's, works. A, it's a picture of someone who understands Christ rightly has de- demonstrates good works and seeks for that. Do you believe that both uses of Romans 2, do you, first of all, do you understand that there's two different uses and have you heard that and are both equally um, valid or useful? I don't necessarily agree that there's two uses, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> um, and what you're saying goes hand in hand. So uh, absolutely, um, the problem of the, of the Jews in Romans chapter 2 was a... Um, what we've referred to as this self-righteous legalism in terms of uh, the law, but it was, it's not trusting Christ alone. So 
Good works are important. Good works do flow forth from justification. But as Sinclair Ferguson said in this book, those good works are confirmation of what God, of, what, of Christ's righteousness on your behalf. They confirm it. They don't strengthen it. So can we use Romans 2 as an example of that? what you're saying, that good works confirm Christ's righteousness and grace? Can it be used in that way? In light of the rest of teaching, I'll take the easy way out. In light of the, of the, of the whole counsel of God, yes. Eric, coming from an upbringing in a very legalistic denomination, one of the most freeing realizations I had that was when I realized that it was not anything to do what I had done, but only what Christ had done. And I can't understand anyone who wants to live under legalism because it is such a defeating faith. And all my young life, I questioned my security in Christ and so that realization was so freeing to me not that I don't need to obey God's law but that it's not about me and what I do it's about the fact that Christ has redeemed me and called me by called me by name and that's the most freeing thing that I can live under as a Christian so So wonderful this has been a wonderful study this morning so Mm. thank you well praise God that's that's a wonderful thing to think about the difference between um, you know, the room is lit, uh, the outside is cold, the room is lit, and there's a fireplace in the corner, and because of what Christ has done, we can gather around that fire, feel the warmth of it, and have the privilege of sitting uh, with the Lord. What do we get to do? Uh, and from that point, uh, from a position of gratitude, why would we not run to the light, run to Jesus? Um, let me close in prayer. I encourage you to hang out, um, talk some more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for uh, the church. We thank you for Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, we thank you for um, the truth of the gospel and the fact that redemption uh, is ours only in Christ. And I pray that you would fill each of these men and women up with your spirit, that you would pour out on us a longing for Christ, and that you would cause us to come to worship this morning with grateful hearts for what you have done and our response, I pray, would be filled with praise and awe and gratitude. Help us to worship you now in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.